Welcome to The Legal Tea, the podcast where we interview lawyers brewing beyond corporate law. Each week, you'll hear about their practice area, the work they do, and the roads they've taken to get there. I'm your host, Max Herberg. Welcome back, everybody. To our UK listeners out there, I hope all of you are staying safe and sane in what has now become Tier 5 slash Lockdown 3.0. At this point, opening the fridge is more exciting than opening Netflix in terms of content offering. You see, personally, Netflix and I are kind of going through a breakup at the moment. After the sequence of Are You Still Watching messages from Netflix have really started sounding more like passive-aggressive criticisms at my choice of content. Are you really still watching Below Deck? Yes, I am Netflix. Have you got a problem with that? I find myself much less judged with Amazon Prime, who unfortunately aren't sponsoring this podcast, but definitely should. Anyways, jokes aside, to cheer up your spirits this week, I wanted to share with you perhaps one of my favorite conversations on Legal Tea thus far. Not only for the impact and excitement in the practice area we'll be discussing, but for its overall testament to the importance of resilience and proactivity with one's career, to handle the obstacles life throws at each one of us with creativity and patience to be willing to try a variety of career paths till you find one which truly impassions you. You see, this week we'll be talking to Judel Harty, a UN peacebuilding associate. In this episode, we discuss about working at the United Nations, specifically the centrality of project management, working with a variety of governmental as well as local stakeholders in conflict zones, and adapting priorities and project goals in the wake of the COVID-19 pandemic. But we also talk about Jude's unique career journey, from doing her LLB at Swansea University, to working in corporate law, to creating her own legal tech startup, to ending up working at the HQ UN office in New York. So, without further ado, sit back, relax, brew yourself a cuppa, and enjoy the show. Hi, Jude. Welcome to the podcast and thank you so much for coming on today. How are you doing? I'm doing great and uh, it's good to talk to you, Max. Thank you so much for inviting me. I'm looking forward to this. Fantastic. And yes, we've got a lot to talk about. But before we jump right in, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself? Okay, so my name is uh, Jude Wassel-Harty. I'm from Saudi Arabia. I'm currently working in the United Nations in the Department of uh, Political and Peacebuilding Affairs. I'm based in the Peacebuilding Support Office and the office is in New York. I work on Western Balkans, Central Asia, and South Asia peacebuilding projects. And I've just recently uh, moved from London to New York. So uh, it's been over a year right now for me in the office. How are you finding life across the pond? It's great. I love New York. It has its own uniqueness in comparison to London, but I also lived in the UK for nine years. So I definitely miss it. I think both cities, each one has its own beauty and you can't really compare both of them. But yeah. A respectful answer. Don't want to anger the New Yorkers nor the Londoners. I like it. (laughs) UN, peace building, all these different regions. Very interesting. But from my perspective, I don't know where to begin. So what do you do in the UN peace building department? Okay. So to break it down, the UN has three pillars. So that's peace and security, human rights and development. Essentially, that means that all the UN's work, its huge system and agencies and all of it, really works towards serving those three pillars. Or at least there's an element of each of those pillars in the work that they do. 
Peace building is a cross-pillar work, meaning that in peace building, there is an element from human rights, there's an element from development of youth empowerment, women empowerment. It's a very dynamic field, really. And I say this since that when it comes to peace building, really, it depends on the need that we see on the ground. Now, peace building can happen in countries that are undergoing conflict, about to go to conflict, or have just recently come out of conflict. It can really be any country in the world. Um, and the project can be, I mean, the projects are very diverse. It can be from using soft power tools to, uh, like I said, empowerment projects that are focused on youth, schools, hackathons, so soft power tools to a bit more of, I'd say, serious projects about prevention of violent extremism and reintegrating uh, foreign fighters. So again, it always starts with the conflict assessment. Really, what is the need we're seeing here? What are we struggling with? Peace building is really focused on prevention work. So it's preventing future conflict. It's minimizing conflict. It's managing conflict. So it's trying to already prevent the threats and the risks that we see growing in the future. A good way of also to think of the work that we do is think of the SDG goals, right? The sustainable development goals. For example, the first one is zero poverty. So imagine in a world where all those SDG beautiful goals come true, where there's accessibility to education, no inequality, then really we can have a peaceful community. So that's kind of a framework we sometimes operate in in our projects, trying to integrate as much of those SDG goals, trying to assess the conflict. It's super dynamic. It's, um, I'd have to say it's maybe the most interesting job I've done so far. And to give you maybe more of an idea on the work I would specifically do as an associate peace building officer is we work with colleagues in the field. We work with governments. We work with NGOs and nonprofits in the field, it, all the stakeholders. We also work with the other departments in the UN, of course, to be able to make it as comprehensive of a project as possible. The very first stage is realizing what is the conflict on the ground. Second stage is developing the solutions. And that's where we try to make it as comprehensive as possible, bringing in everyone and integrating their point of views, integrating their comments. From there, we would be able to develop and design the project. Once it's implemented and it's launched, we would continuously monitor it, evaluate the peace building results. I mean, as you know, in conflict-prone countries or on such projects, you need to be adaptable. Things can change any moment now. So while you're continuously monitoring it, there's that question constantly, is this working? Are we meeting the milestones of the project? Are we seeing the results we need? If not, we readapt the project, we readapt the goals. And then really you just continuously keep evaluating it until the very end where we close out the project, we take in the lessons learned, and then we feed the lessons learned into a new project. And then, you know, you start the whole beautiful journey. And peace building projects, usually my department duration is the least is 18 months. So it can go up to two, three years. And of course, financially, it will vary depending. We have projects that go up to millions and then some that are less. So that's also depending on the budgeting and solutions and what's going on. So it kind of gives you an idea of the bigger image of what I operate in and the work that I do. How do you get time to sleep? <laughs> I mean, just so that explanation alone, it seems like you have so many things to contemplate and to worry about, not only identifying the problem, but also finding the appropriate solution, looking at your toolbox of different solutions, implementing a timeline, seeing whether you have the necessary financing. You've got a behemoth of a task on your shoulders here. And obviously you're working for the UN, which of all organizations would be the one to turn to, but how do you as a person manage all of that? 
I mean, I have to be honest, it's an all hands on deck kind of situation. So I can't take any credit because I have such brilliant colleagues. And it really, like I said, this one project for it to work, it does take in so many from the New York office to the field. And so just kind of realizing that the support system, understanding that it's not on you alone, that makes a huge difference. But also maybe on a personal level is uh, taking it day by day, breaking down the tasks for yourself. Attention to detail is super important in these kinds of situations. And also, like you just said, it's considering all sides of the problem, right? But we want to be quick enough to find solutions. We want to be timely to design the perfect peace building project that could, what, take years. But for us, we would have to do it, I mean, I wouldn't say as fast as possible, but we need to be practical about this. Really, we need to be able to deliver. Some of the peace building projects take place in elections. We have hate speech projects during elections to make sure that we minimize any kind of tension between parties or groups. And in such a situation, we need to create a good enough project and time for elections. We can't wait too long now, can we? So it is also working with the urgency, but most of all is adaptability, because as you just said, having to monitor, continuously think of these projects, make sure we're on top of everything, nothing falls through the cracks is COVID-19 is a great example, Max. I mean, COVID-19 hit everyone, really. And we have to reassess all our peace-building projects because conflicts have changed. Whatever the nature of that project was there originally for, either the virus has maxed it up, we've now, the situation has gone way worse. Or on the other hand, some of the projects, there was a question if they're even relevant anymore. So that is where I would say maybe sleep wasn't much of an option at the beginning of the pandemic because since we operated in so many different countries, different countries were in a different timeline when it came to the virus. So adaptability is key because uh, the situation is always evolving and you need to be on top of things constantly. And that takes the help of a huge, brilliant team of people. I can imagine you also need to coordinate with the ground as well. You know, one thing is being a centralized organization based in New York or having all these offices. But when talking about peace building, you need the most current information from the people or from some people that are on the ground. I don't know if the UN has officers there recording and feeding back to you. But I can imagine that must have been disrupted as a result of the COVID pandemic. No, 100%. I mean, the real superstars of peace building, I have to say, are my colleagues in the field. They're the ones implementing the project, right? They're the ones that HQ and get their information from. They are our number one uh, resource. And COVID-19, every company really struggled with their employees. So we've also had to take that into account. We don't have to work from home. Due to some countries, lockdown, mobility was an issue for projects and also for our colleagues that provide us with the assessment that always analyze the situation for us. So it was a huge challenge and we've had to readapt the delivery format of our project. Technology was our first resource. But even then, you really did press the question, Max, that is technology maybe accessible, but is it inclusive? Because some of our beneficiaries of the projects, really, they're some of the least advantaged, right, in certain countries. Who says they have laptops and Wi-Fi? Is this an inclusive solution? There was a lot of challenges, really, for our projects, for our colleagues on the ground. But it was a case-by-case situation. It depended always. And we tried to respond to it as best as possible. I would say that making things remote, having to adapt and utilize technology was our number one solution. In situations where things weren't as inclusive as possible, we had certain projects around until the lockdown eases a bit. So, yes, there's been a lot of change in the peace-building community. (laughs) I hope you don't mind me saying, but it sounds that a lot of your work is centered around being resourceful, being pragmatic, as you were saying, with a timeline, but also being resourceful 
make the most out of what you have. But at the same time, you know, people might say, well, the United Nations is the biggest organization in the world. Nobody else would have a bigger pot of money that's a public entity, setting aside all the VCs and corporate firms that make millions and billions. But as a public organization, international organization, you'd imagine that the UN just has a, a huge pot of gold and, and they'd have enough money just to fund all these projects. Uh, w- without pissing off the United Nations here, what is the reality <laughs> here in terms of this resourcefulness attitude, but at the same time being with such an international and prominent organization? Yeah. Let's be a bit realistic here, right? So yes, the UN is one of the largest international organizations in the world, and it is looked up to when it comes to solving global issues, really. And when it comes to resourcefulness, I mean, member states are so vital to the UN's work because donations and also collaborations that happen with member states are endless. They are a core element of our work. So I would say that when it comes to resourcefulness, it really depends because the way it operates is... The money isn't really for everyone because we're so many agencies. There's about 15 UN agencies, right? We're talking IMF, the WHO, UN Women, right? I work in the Secretariat, the Department of Political and Peacebuilding Affairs. So when donations come in, it's up to member states and, of course, uh, the donating uh, parties, which department goes to. So it's not a big pool for everyone. So it's up to you if you're donating to UNDP and if you are, then to which department, which specific fund are you donating to? And this really matters for uh, different member states have different priorities, right? But I don't only want to put a member states really depending on what fund it is, like UNICEF. You can even donate to UNICEF, right? So it depends on two things when it comes to resourcefulness. The priorities of the people or the individuals, organizations that are donating, depending on what member state you are, different set of them care about different set of issues. And the second thing is that own department or agency priorities. Where are they concerned right now? Where are they operating right now? So that's how really the money flow is when you think of the UN a bit, is who's donating and what's that individual priorities and this own department's What's their priorities? Where are they going to put the money in? Because I would say in peace building, we have certain countries where uh, are more of a concern right now than others. Same goes for development. You have certain for the UNTP, for example, they are more concerned about other areas in the world. And also member states, sometimes they also have their own conditions. They are more concerned about certain topics than others. So it's not that the money is freeful. I wish there was a gold pot, like you said. <laughs> but a good example is now with COVID-19, there's been a new fund, COVID-19 fund. <laughs> A lot of the money now is flowing there. Why? Because COVID-19 is a bigger issue right now for us than maybe other certain issues. So I would say that's a very active fund right now in terms of resources. And of course, always trying to have money value. I think this is a rule for all of us. I mean, I can only really speak about my work. Money value is one of the most important topics we have. Are we really using too much? Are we using too little? Are we using enough of a budget to respond to this? Another good example is in our budgeting, we have a gender empowerment and women empowerment percentage that each project is meant to specifically have this month funds going into gender equality and women empowerment because those topics are priority for my department. So again, it will really vary. So a much more nuanced issue behind the curtains than it may look to the outside. (laughs) Now, I want to kind of step away a moment from the United Nations and talk about your journey to the United Nations, because it doesn't seem clear that your path was just straight out of law school into the UN, saving the world. So take us to the beginning. Okay, not to go back too far into the beginning. (laughs) I would say that it hasn't been a linear path. It's been quite a zigzag, to be honest. So I grew up in Saudi Arabia. And then in 2011, 2019, I was based in the UK. 
I first went there to study my legal degree. So I did my foundation year at UCL, my bachelor's at Swansea, and then my master's at Soas University. And then I continued to work in the legal sector, but really in between, I was freelancing in public policy. I also volunteered in charity and took time to work with a social enterprise and eventually ended up working at a human rights firm. And from there, I got interested in the legal tech, decided to open a legal tech startup, stopped that idea to go work to the UN. So I'm trying to summarize it as much as possible, and we can then uh, dive into it as much as you'd like. <laughs> Why do we go at the beginning? Why did you want to study law in the UK? Okay, so when it comes to why did I want to study law, first of all, I just think I've always been a very curious person from a very young age. I've always been filled with questions. Why is it this way? How come? Who's deciding? What's regulating us? Why do companies work like this? So I think governance, I've always found that super interesting. And then the second thing is a lot of those that I looked up to had law degrees when I was young. And also just a lot of the careers I was considering, that legal degree seemed to be able to empower me to that career path. And the last reason I'd say is I was always a big reader and a writer. And I was told that a law degree will have a lot of writing and reading and the research and analytical thinking. So that sounded exciting and I was not disappointed. Why the UK? Because, I mean, I think the quality that you can get of a law degree in the UK is quite strong. Some of the most established institutions. Second of all is uh, I remember when trying to make a decision realizing that actually a lot of countries don't offer laws in undergrad, so more of a graduate school option. And so, yeah, it was an easy pick to go ahead and study in the UK. And I'm glad I did. I've gained a lot of friends and I've gained uh, very beautiful memories from my time there. Of course. And yeah, definitely relate to the undergrad versus other jurisdictions that only offer it as a graduate school. As a, as a child growing up, I thought I'd uh, study law in the States. And then the day that I realized that you can only do that as a graduate and on top of that, that's after the 200 and so thousand dollars in student debt that you've already racked up only to then study, study law. I was no, it would be more pragmatic. My parents don't have a pot of gold, unfortunately. So God, I got to divert my attention to the UK. No, I mean, I had the same thing. And I also, because I was scholarship student, honestly, I couldn't have afforded to study in the UK if I wanted. So when it came to scholarships, there was a limited uh, countries and universities you can even find. So really I had to work with that option and Exactly what you just said. The USA was one of the countries, but maybe patience isn't my greatest quality. I wanted to study law now. I wanted to see what it's like. I mean, especially in the UN peacebuilding division where you've got tight timelines, it doesn't seem like patience is very much <laughs> the important skill. It's more action. Exactly. Trying to be as proactive as possible. <laughs> So you said that you did your foundation at UCL and then you did your undergrad at Swansea. Why Swansea? That's a good question, actually. I had a few relatives, I'll say, that said, why are you leaving UCL? Why are you leaving London? What are you thinking about? I'll be very honest. As an 18-year-old, I found uh, London, for me, very demanding. I think the city life, even though it was brilliant, it was beautiful. And I eventually did move back to London and ended up working there, studying there. But at the age of 18, I just found it a bit... I think everything was much such a rush all the time. And I just never found the time to sit down and breathe and finish my studies and go to meet friends. But in Swansea, I had a few uh, had a few friends already at Swansea during my foundation year that I visited. And when I saw the beach, I saw how quiet and nice it is, really. It was just, I was jealous. And I realized that Swansea, for me personally, it was just calmer, quieter. I would be more content. And it suited what I wanted to do for bachelor's. I mean, for me, for in the weekend, just sitting on the beach and then going home to study, that sounds like a dream to me. 
I know it doesn't have maybe that that lifestyle that people envision in London, but it was the perfect thing for me. I mean, also, since it's a small town, I would say that people are more friendly, easygoing, relaxed, and uh, no one's in a big rush. And the, the professors were super friendly. I felt like um, I related a lot to Swansea and what I was able to offer. I was really happy when I was there. I love that point that you mentioned. That's what worked for me. Because I think especially important in, say, in your undergrad or going to university, I'm a big believer in, in finding the right education style for you. And I think one of the things that we suffer from in law is being not only one of the few degrees that from the very get-go, it's already about the job that you're going to be applying to in three years' time. And then on top of that, there is this obsession in terms of rankings. I know that growing up, one of the things that would get repeated is go to a top-ranking university. If you don't go into the top five, you're not going to get a good job, which you're living proof that 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 isn't the case. So what would you say to people who, who are anxious, both people applying for law, especially in this coming year with the COVID pandemic, but also people in law that might not be, say, in the London unis? What would you say to them about these conceptions? So I think you've really summarized it perfectly, Max. There is a sense of urgency. And I'd say, yeah, it kind of builds up anxiety in a lot of students. And I would lie if I say I didn't feel that sense of anxiety. And that's why a big reason I decided to leave UCL in London altogether. It's just I found that uh, there was just not too much pressure than just the narrative that is created for you. And then you find yourself being pushed into it. I would, I just wanted to be away from it, right? And uh, no, I like Wales, so just go somewhere and in peace, finish your degree and think about life near a beach. I just, yeah. <laughs> I would say to all the students who are considering, really know yourself. I went into it, you said, go to the ranking, go to the top, go to Big London. And, and that's where the networking is. That's where all the opportunities is. Now, not to say that it isn't. Let's be honest. We are in a world where rankings exist, where being in London does mean you have access to more networking opportunities. But... But it's not impossible to succeed if you're not a university like that. You don't have to be in one of the top five or even in a, you don't even need to be in a Russell Group University. I mean, I'm not in any of that, right? Now, I will say that the number one thing I'd advise people is know yourself. What do you need? I needed somewhere quiet and calm where I can just in peace study. Second thing is, and frankly speaking, is financially. Like I just told you, I was a scholarship student. I found London way too demanding. So in Swansea, I could live more of the lifestyle I sought. So financial, that is a question students have to consider. And lastly, opportunities are what you're going to make of. I know it might be frustrating to just say it and pretend that London doesn't have several open days and so many networking chances. But I would sometimes just go to London for a weekend and try as much as I can to meet people for coffee if I'm networking, right? Or I would choose a few days of the week if there's an event to go down to and I would save up. Another way around it is online. There are so many groups and societies you can join that will provide you those opportunities. I mean, a good example is SEO London, which I was a part of for a while. So in SEO London, students from all over UK, there's more than just SEO, there's tons of now, diversity groups out there and different groups to empower uh, law students who don't find themselves as fortunate to be in the top universities. So utilizing those groups by reaching out to them, and they will maybe help you reach out to a bigger network and a bigger set of events. So find a university that suits you. And then from there, you could really build your own situation. It is, it is in the end of the day up to you. And most importantly, no one has ever sat down with me in any of my interviews and asked me about Swansea or my grades. 
Yes, it's good to get it to one and a first, but I've never been asked that. Why? Because I have filled my undergrad and my master's with work experience. It's not about constantly trying to check the right boxes, go to the top university, get that big name on your CV, get this. It is about you, right? So it's uh, getting that work experience that you're interested in, getting that level of, let's say, volunteering extracurriculars, that then you could sell off in any job in any interview. That's something I found every single firm, every single position I've ever applied to really appreciated about me. So I would tell them to shift their focus to who they are and that it's up to them to get that level of experience rather than make it about a university. And just to end it, so many people, for example, graduate from Harvard every year. And I'm just using Harvard because it's that stereotypical always. It's a brilliant thing, but it is that kind of thing, right? But do all of them become successful? Do all of them have perfect jobs and perfect lives? No. So um, just to say we have to fight that, um, that illusion, right? And um, yeah, and, and again, and during my master's, actually. Uh, so I went to Soas University, brilliant place. Um, but also, I actually had offers from places I've applied to that were, I would say, in other companies' books, maybe more prestigious and more of a top, but I rejected them. And yet again, my family and friends were said, what are you thinking about? These are hot, more, these are higher ranking than SOAS. But no, I knew what I wanted in SOAS. I knew what I was interested in and that, that university can provide it for me. This is what I want. So you need to create your own narrative. Do not fall into the fake stereotypical narrative that is sometimes forced upon us. I totally agree with that. You talked about just doing work experiences during your undergrad and your master's. What type of work experience, if you could give two or three examples of the types of, of work experiences that you were undertaking during this time? Okay, so uh, as an international student, since I was on an international student visa, there's actually limited hours where a lot to work. So that kind of took out, unfortunately, some of my options. But uh, usually using winter break, using Easter break as much as I can, even summer, just to do work experience and keeping busy. So I did the usual, which all law students end up doing, commercial law firms. Unfortunately, it is something that's oversold to us. And there's also the consideration that as an international student, actually, there's limited places that offer sponsorship visa. And even those that do, they have limited seats available. So I had to early on consider what are the companies I can even think about, right? I say that's just a bit sad because when you're an ambitious person and you're someone who's really interested in working, sometimes you just want to work in a small startup, right? But startups can't really afford to have a sponsorship visa. A good tip for any of your listeners that are international students is UKGov has um, a list of all the companies that are certified to sponsor and provide a working permit. So go on that list and just use that as your starting point when you're thinking, rather than looking at each company online and then having to reach out to HR to ask them, oh, can I apply? So I use that list, first of all, to uh, think even of working experience because I did want to get to know potentially my future workplace. And I started also, what I would say, the um, omitting method. So I worked at the international firms. During the whole time you're getting work experience, a good tip is to constantly be in tune with your inner dialogue. You need to really know, am I enjoying this? Am I not enjoying this? Am I feeling resistance while doing certain tasks? Which of these tasks is motivating for me? Because the idea of getting work experience isn't to make yourself more employable. What will make you more employable is that you know yourself better than you did before. 
And so I was all, I mean, I journal. I, so I always constantly used to write for myself, how am I feeling about things? What am I liking? What am I not? Do I feel like I'm developing more? And like I said, limiting method. So one of the things I've also did is take court experience at the federal court in California. And that was a way for me to see do I enjoy courts? Do I like this? And I had the chance to work on a terrorism case. I had the chance to look, look at some bankruptcy case. I was based on Judge Virginia Phillips' uh, chamber. From there, I knew that I'm not meant for courts. <laughs> just to, that, and that's actually great. That's great. Sometimes having uh, an experience that you walk out of and you think, I want to do that again. Like, Don't get me wrong. Uh, Judge Virginia Phillips was amazing. The whole experience was wonderful. But what I saw for myself, I realized I think I'm more interested in another set of work. And another thing I did during uh, my bachelor's, I, I enjoyed the NU and Model United Nations Youth Conferences. So I did the one up in Geneva, London, Oxford, Manchester. And I even interned in the UNDP office in Saudi Arabia. So I tried to really diversify my experience since, I mean, as a student, you, you're young and you're discovering that you're, you're discovering the market, but what you're really trying to discover is yourself. Well, I had other friends who only pursued corporate experience, only pursued vacation schemes. That's not wrong. I'm still in touch with them. They're happy. They're in the career they believe is where they want to be. But every time I went to a careers fair, a law fair, it was just one international commercial firm after another. That's where the lineup was. Those were the biggest. I used to stand and think, but what else is out there? That's great. But really, what else is out there for me? So people need to take initiative. No job is a bad job because every work experience will teach you something about yourself. And that's the key, not to get big names on your CV. The key is to get to understand yourself. And that's the biggest lesson I've learned at that time. That's, again, (laughs) beautifully put. I think really that idea about discovering yourself and every work experience. At the end of the day, it's really just developing and, and revealing who you are and what it is that you want your career to be. You've talked a lot about how your status as an international student and also funding has prevented you from being able to realize all the opportunities that might be open to someone that was a UK student. How did you overcome that adversity? Because I'm imagining this wasn't only for being in the UK during uni, but also, you know, going out and finding graduate jobs. So how did you find the level of help, if any, was offered in terms of guiding you? And what recommendations do you have to people undergoing currently the same process or about to? That's a brilliant question. I would say that even though it is a great thing to be an international student in the UK because there's a lot of opportunities and it's in London, especially it's very urbanized, right? And globalized and some of the biggest companies in the world. So not to pretend that there are no opportunities, but despite that, there's a lot of anxiety. Honestly, there's a lot of stress and pressure because also there's not a ticking bomb, but there is a ticking clock, right? Because sooner or later the visa's up and you know that you're quite interested in still developing yourself in such an international environment, so dealing with that level of stress is have a good support system, honestly. And I would say I was a part of a few diversity groups online, also in person. Like I said, one of them was a CEO London. So that's a great way to find, first of all, a community of people who are struggling just like yourself and also finding mentors. If you're attending open days and you're attending um, different networking events, not necessarily only in law firms, really in whatever industry you're interested in, do, do network because each company, you'll find someone that you can relate to. And then just informally reaching out to them for coffee and during the conversation, 
I have a few mentors I still reach out to today. Some of them, I just cold messaged on LinkedIn because I like their profile and I like where they work and said, hey, you know what? This sounds super fascinating. Can we have coffee? And then after coffee, I'd say, you know, as an international student, I'm facing this. I really want to be able to learn more. Um, would you be willing to still kind of help? And it's, it's those conversations, being open about the challenges you're facing with others. People have given me great tips suddenly while mid-conversation with me, or they connect you to someone, or they would take the time to even help you research. So being open about those challenges as much as possible, reaching out to whoever you can. Is it your supervisor at school? Is it your careers? Is it, like I said, someone on LinkedIn? Who might be from your same ethnicity that you find in a firm that you're interested in? Reach out to them. And, and yeah, diversity groups. That was the top way I handled that level of pressure. And that, and that was also a big way how I found my opportunities. I do believe, you know, this idea of having a support system and, you know, especially reaching out to people who have probably gone through the same process in order and, and have gotten kind of on the other side. I really do believe that that idea of community building, especially in say in such a, in, in the legal profession, like we were talking about earlier about it being competitive, about kind of there being a certain narrative and combating that narrative. I did want to add something. This is just a tip is to strategize. Like I said, using, first of all, that list of UK Gov companies, right? First of all, know where can you even apply. Then know where are you interested, which of these companies or firms speak to you and your interest. But really strategizing, meaning at one point, I had to think, what is my niche? What can I offer? What can I contribute with? Because there's so much competition. So you really need to know what makes me then competitive to others. I did at one moment pause and think, what I am is an Arab female who has good level of information about me in that region, but I also have my UK education. How can I package that and offer it to an employer? So every single person, whether you're an international student or not, there is something you can offer. For example, if you're interested in technology and law, maybe you can then go to a legal tech really focused thing, right? So there's something we all can package up and offer that someone else maybe not necessarily can do so on the level we can. And one of the strategies I had is to either apply to Middle East firms that are commercial law firms, have their offices there, or even to firms in London that have a huge Middle East uh, client base. So that's just a simple example of a strategy I had, because you don't want to exhaust yourself and overwhelm yourself and where you can apply. You can apply everywhere. But I would think that not only thinking which company is suited for me, but which company am I suited even for? That's a huge question to ask yourself. And that follows nicely into the next question, the zigzagging nature of your professional career. First working in a law firm and focusing on human rights, then going into legal tech and starting your own business, and then going into the UN peace building. Outside, it just sounds that you tried a bit of everything and this is where you are at the moment. But also, I, I can't help but ask, was this also motivated by the reality of being an international student and having to be dependent on firms that could sponsor your visa and, and sponsor your stay and, and right to work here? So we have a saying in Arabic. I hope you don't mind. I'll just say it in Arabic for a second. It's which means desperation is the mother of invention. That's a, maybe a bad translation, but it basically means when you're desperate and when you're put in a corner, you're going to get as creative as possible with your solutions, right? And you'll start to see outside of the box <laughs> because you have to. 
really, you have to to survive, to adapt to the demands that you're facing every day. Like I said, some days when I still felt that I had a lot of time and it was a bit more relaxed and then I felt that time is rushing, I had to take serious action. And maybe like, for example, I wasn't so comfortable with cold messaging, but at one point I just told myself, get comfortable with this. (laughs) Have to cross the line. Come on, let's go. (laughs) You have to do this right now. Send that email. So push this. And so when it comes to that question into how was I able to then move forward from there, it was a bit of a zigzag. It really was. However, I started thinking around my master's is that law is not my end goal. It's a stepping stone. It really should be a stepping stone. Often we can box ourselves up in our degrees and our career and we can plan it all up when we're only 20, 21. (laughs) And we're much more interesting. People are more diverse. To be honest with you, I don't even think nine to five is sufficient enough to really help us engage with all our interests. Are we just one job title? Really? We have so many different interests. And I bet if people can, we would have hundreds of jobs at the same time. We, we unfortunately have to be a bit picky due to the amount of energy and time we can give something. So I started thinking that law is more of a stepping stone. And I thought of the other things I want to engage with, that law might be an entry point rather than the only thing. To give you an example, I got involved in a Lawyers Without Borders competition called the Rule of Law Innovation Competition. And what I did with my team is we created an interactive storybook on uh, human trafficking in Tanzania. And we won first place. And we've been developing that storybook with Lawyers Without Borders since 2017. Why? Because on the side, like I told you, I'm a reader and I'm a writer, but I also love law. So it was a great way of me to test out both things at the same time. A second example of using law as a stepping stone is I started freelancing with the Middle East Economist Intelligence Unit during my master's. And that's because I wanted to get involved in policy and I enjoyed international law, but I also wanted to discover more on what will it look like when you're translating it through policy and social issues. So I feel that was a turning point when I was at my master's because I wanted more. I really wanted to see more, to know more, to test more. And uh, even during my master's, it's advisable to kind of specialize, right? I insisted on taking a general LLM because I wanted to study gender studies and commercial comparative law and, and, and Islamic human rights. And it's just realizing that you want to have less boundaries in your life. You want to put more. You don't need to narrow yourself. And that was funny. I'll have to say during my UN interview, it's trying to explain the zigzag. <laughs> but it is, it is your story. And it's up to you what you're going to highlight. And... I was able to, I mean, really corporate law and that kind of background. It doesn't shout peace building when you look at it, now, does it? <laughs> not, not, not really, not really. <laughs> no, but that was up to me to convince them. And uh, I was able to highlight the transitional skills I can bring in from corporate law, which is tons when it comes to drafting, attention to detail, time management. But when it came to the social issues, that's where I was able to sell off lawyers that borders work, my freelancing work my side interest and side volunteering, the social entrepreneurship organization I worked in, in a funny way, I think when I look back at that zigzag, it makes absolute sense why I'm in peace building. But going forward, it didn't. It was more of the time is clicking. What can I do? Let me use law as a stepping stone. Should I consider this? Should I consider that? I'm actually interested in legal tech. Should I open a business? I mean, some days I was worried my CV won't make any sense to people, but why should it? right? Life doesn't need to make sense to an employer. It should just make sense to you. And then you package it up for an employer. 
That's very well put. There's a lot to unpack there. So first <laughs> off, this idea of law as a stepping stone rather than a box. I think that's completely right. I think not only has the legal profession traditionally been so conceptualized as just you're studying and you're landlocked to a particular jurisdiction where you'll be a lawyer. But now, as you were talking about before, in terms of going to law fairs, it's become so synonymized with commercial law and corporate law. You go to a law fair, 95% of them are international corporate law firms, and then maybe one or two at the back end of the corner is a, is a chambers, you know, for those that want to become a barrister. But where are the social enterprise? Where are the NGOs? Part of the motivation of starting this whole podcast is to really show all the things that you can do with a law degree, not only as a profession, but also, as you were saying, as a stepping stone. Now, in terms of how you used it as a stepping stone, you initially got into the corporate firm. How did you feel afterwards that your skills that you developed during your LLB and during your corporate firm, how do those translate to later in terms of obviously now you, you, you had kind of the legal tech and, and you have these other social projects on the side, but then how do you sell that to United Nations? How do you go from, I've worked on mergers and acquisitions, I've helped uh, corporate clients uh, set up IPOs to, I'm ready to send me to the West Balkans to, to help the situation on the ground. Yeah, that's quite true. And I think that was also a big question for me pre-interview, sitting down and thinking about it. A good interview tip given once to me is, obviously always prepare and sit down and do your research about who's calling you, the department, and then think up of all the examples you can provide them that could link to their work. Write down those examples. No, literally, write them down. And then after you write them down, look at what you wrote down and really just take out the content or the keywords that the interviewer will need to hear and delete everything else. This is just something I did an exercise for myself. I did sit down and think of all the, like you said, emerges and acquisitions and all those stories and then think really what is in there for me to highlight that they need to know because I don't, they don't need to know all this. And then take out the keywords and the sentences I could say for the interview. So that's one exercise. The second exercise is, see how I mentioned from the beginning, be in tune with that internal dialogue. And know that no job is the end goal. Even the UN, I couldn't realize I'm going to be here five years ago. I don't know where I'll be five years from now. So always treat yourself as your own experiment in gaining different skills and continuously evolving and being a continuous learner because that means that when I came to talk to the UN and I was able to sell off my transitional skill set, it's because I literally treated those skills as transitional skills. I didn't just say to myself, this is it. I'm here forever in corporate, never leaving. This is all I need to learn. See, desperation is the mother of invention. So on the side, I made sure I'm always aware of what's really happening in the legal world. What opportunities is there? What is not an opportunity? Where can I go? Where can I, where can I not go? So it's important to continuously evolve and learn. And when I was questioned about my zigzag, that's what I said. So I'm a curious, continuous learner. And okay, yes, maybe I, I'm not an expert in reconciliation or peace building or inter-ethnic tension, but I can bring into you the knowledge on First of all, working closely with how important is interpersonal skills with clients, right? That's a huge thing. And you deal with, as an international student, I've always been drawn to people who come from everywhere, really. So having a global mindset, and I specifically wanted to work in international firms because I enjoyed the large-scale work they did. So that was something I sold off to them as they work in a large-scale project too. They need attention to detail and knowledge of budgeting and dealing with colleagues in the field who come from everywhere. 
So in a funny way, I was able to make links between that basic skills that I've used as a corporate into that. And then this is why I believe it's important to diversify our skill set. When it came to showing them I care about the global issues that they work on, that's where my volunteering, my charity work, and my freelancing came in, and some of the pro bono I did. Is showing them I was interested in the thematic problems through this, but I can bring in the skill set through this way. The last thing I will say for anyone interested in the UN is here's a big myth that only those that apply to the UN are international human rights expert or political affairs officer, or if they have international relations. But the UN needs all kinds of people, and they can't only hire the same kinds of people because then you're hiring people who can come up with the same solutions. In fact, my department likes it that I come from the private sector. Since I can see certain problems, they don't notice. And I sometimes actually have to remind certain colleagues of why don't we think of partnering up with the private sector? So it is important that wherever you come from, actually, rather than thinking, oh, I don't have the usual experience they want, is thinking, how can I take my experience and sell that off to them? Because that's something I did, is try to show them that my skill set can be suitable within the context of peace building. Since I work in the private sector, so I can understand that. Since I'm an international student, since I have interest in MENA, and um, I've already worked in public policy. So kind of realizing that don't, you don't need to spit the stereotype because they already get hundreds and hundreds of people with that same profile, but they won't get someone like you. Yeah, and that relates to to the other point that I was going to raise about how, in retrospect, the zigzag makes perfect sense. You look back, it's kind of like, well, this was me learning what my skills were, trying everything and and really building to the person that I am today, which is having this transitioning skill set that I can use in, in multiple different environments and also being able to absorb and benefit my experience in these environments and apply what I've learned in those environments in here. But again, in retrospect, everything seems a lot clearer when we look backwards and when we're looking forwards. And I must imagine that when you were doing this transition and you're leaving the security of a, of a well-paying job in order to go for something that's an ambition of yours, but, but doesn't have that set out path and security. And I'm saying this as well, not only for law students seeking from the get-go going to this path, but also for current and junior lawyers like you were once that have become disenchanted with corporate law. I mean, you know, not everyone from the get-go knows that corporate law is it for them. Some people try it out. And because, you know, the brochures make it sound so lovely. Everything's paid for. The track is there. Everyone else is doing it. I mean, you know, why wouldn't you want to join? Do you really want to miss out on the crown? But then they get in a couple of years and they see it's a certain level of monotony, tough pressuring hours, and it, it just doesn't vibe with them. It's, it's not what they want to spend the next 20, 30 years doing. Then obviously there's that existentialist pressure of, you know, am I really going to drop everything I have now in order to chase a dream? So in terms of that prospective mindset, you made it akin a lot to the clock is ticking. I've got to make the next move. What's my next move going to be? But how do you keep that, say, sort of faith in the long term when departing the road well-traveled and into a road less traveled or in your case, literally making an entire new road? What would you say as words of comfort or inspiration or guidance? Yeah, I mean, you know, granted that uh, there is a lot of stress in making such a move and 
on the one hand, people can over-romanticize us and take risks and it's uh, adventure and uh, why not? And, yeah, let me just tell my landlord that. He's like, take risks, man. My life, it's only, it, it really can feel, I mean, not that it is, but it can feel like a life and death decision sometimes. And I, I mean, there's definitely days where I thought, oh, this is a smart move. Am I making a huge mistake? Will I regret this? Will I not regret this? I didn't like when people just said, oh, stop worrying or get comfortable with the uncomfortable because yes, it is good to stop worrying and get comfortable with the uncomfortable. But again, these are things that really matter in the long term in our lives when we look back, right? Words of wisdom, though, is it's not an easy ride, especially when people are young and ambitious and they want to do everything right and they want to check all the boxes. And I was one of those people, honestly, who had the perfect plan, Max. I knew who I want to be, where I want to be, what I want to do, but continuously, of course, life, maybe <laughs> things don't go as planned. And I'm, I'm actually grateful that they didn't because sometimes I end up in better places than I anticipated and sometimes not so. And so being flexible is important. Being adaptable is important. Mental health is important. So investing in that, honestly, investing a lot into your own mental health. And one thing I've always told myself, and I feel that I want to tell a lot of other people is be brave enough to hear 50 no's to reach that one important yes. Because I've definitely heard more than 50 no's and I've heard more than one important yes. And it's those yeses that got me where I got today. And to give you maybe a simple anecdote, uh, Max, is I once, uh, 2018, I attended an LSE, an international organization, Open Day. I was exploring and thinking of things at that time. I never anticipated what was going to happen. And it was an amazing day filled with interesting talks and networking and seeing all kinds of opportunities for juniors. And then one of the things was that a lot of the advertised opportunities were based on countries since the UN certain opportunities are partnered with member states. So you'd have to see your country on the list. I didn't see in any of the opportunities I wanted my country on the list. So I went home very disheartened thinking that, huh, I spent the day seeing things I aspired to, but they were all inaccessible to me. It was a bad day. <laughs> I'll have to admit it was one of those days that took you a bit to get over. But little did I know that in about a year, I'd be working in the UN in New York. And that's only since, even after I was disheartened, I continued to check career pages. I continued to follow them on social media, continued to apply to different positions. So being relentless will go a long way in your life. And exactly, it's that bravery to sometimes even being told that there's no opportunity for you here whatsoever, but then being willing to hear the 50 no's to reach that one really important yes. It takes a lot of bravery to go through that. And I'm still acquiring that bravery every day a little bit more. That's the, the strangest thing is that one important yes somehow makes the 50 no's worth it. You do it all over again just because you eventually get to that yes. And so now we've covered the journey. How did you find that transition from working in a private sector organization to a public sector organization? Yeah, that's a good question. I mean, it's uh, very interesting, <laughs> I'll have to say, especially since the UN is not just any <laughs> organization in the private sector, is it? One of the things that maybe stands out is both have their benefits, and I think both have their flaws, honestly, as, as every company would, right? And as every industry does. I'd say bureaucracy is something I've had to get used to and learn a lot more about, and how that translates to your work. And I mean, a lot more paperwork 
And um, of course, because our, our projects are so I mean, sensitive and important, there's a, lot, a long list of signatures and approvals and clearance we'll have to go through. So it's kind of realizing that maybe the timeline of how things get done is, a, is stretched more than in the private sector where I've seen that maybe things get done quite quickly, right? So that's one of the things that stood out to me early. I'd say the second thing is the way the business model really exists in the private sector, it's much more profit-oriented, really. It is much more profit-oriented, so the incentives in the private sector are quite different. The way that motivates the work that we do is very different. Meanwhile, working in the UN, it's you operating with governments. It's you operating with member states, with some of the marginalized and most vulnerable groups in the world. So diplomacy right? Operating in that kind of diplomatic international world, you tread carefully. Every step you take has to be analyzed and it needs to be calculated correctly. And things are also much more impactful in the public sector because whatever step you take, the consequences could be great or could not be so if not calculated correctly. So the stakes are much more higher, I feel, because the stakes are going to relate to individuals and lives. Meanwhile, of course, companies are still important. Profit is still important. But maybe from my perspective, I felt that the impact here is quite different than we're seeing there when it comes to the work we do. And the last thing is the juniors. So diversity, much, much, much more diversity. Of course, in the UN, I I saw in the private sector, um, you're not only serving people all over the world, your colleagues are from all over the world, but also the, the set of juniors zooming into what I feel as a junior myself is Say you're a junior in the private sector, you might be in your early 20s, right, mid-20s. But a junior in the international uh, sector could be someone end of 20s, early 30s, and already with a PhD even, actually. Um, I happen to be the youngest in my department. <laughs> so, I, and, I, and I really am the youngest junior they even have. And that's only since that the level of experience and knowledge you need to have. I mean, you don't have to be the top person in the world, but it is much more competitive. So the level of experience and education you need to have is, I'd say, on a higher level. But I don't want to say this in a way that makes it sound as if it's an accessible opportunity, since I don't have a PhD. I'm not an expert, really. But it does mean that from early on, you should, if people are interested in eventually pursuing that as much as possible, really gaining experience. Because at 30s, if you're in the private sector, you might already be in mid-level, for example, associate, right? That's not really so. I'd say in the UN. The UN moves at a different wavelength. <laughs> exactly. I think career development is a very different dynamic. So it comes to a very different stairway, but yes. So, I mean, like setting aside the idea that promotions in the public sector happen a little less frequently than one might like, this comes to, to my next question about skills necessary to succeed, not only at the UN, but international humanitarian organizations. So you're going to pick up some that, that I noticed in your answer. So one is obviously patience in, in relation to the bureaucracy and slow timeline and having to go through all this paperwork, that patience to deal with the admin. Then secondly, is this idea about carefulness and calculated. I can imagine as well, you know, you're talking about member states and governments, is that you also want to keep a little sense of political neutrality. And then as well, realizing that the people that enter this organization, they're not entering the same way other people enter a corporate law firm, 20s fresh out of the LPC, but rather these are people that already have PhDs. And this isn't a qualification contest about who has the best qualifications, but it's really about learning to bring that perspective and that breadth of experience to the table. 
first off, have I hit the nail on the donkey correctly? Or then also, are there any other skills or mindsets that you think are essential as well? I mean, that's one way to say it really, but also to say that the reason um, there used to be a lot of patience is because it's key to get everyone uh, on board and on the same page. That's really what we're going for. That's why there's a lot of paperwork and everything is because we need to make sure everyone is on the same page. Second thing is when it comes to how you need to calculate and really think of each step is that this is very impactful work. And the UN is a transparent company. All the work actually we do as peace building is available online. All our projects, all our monitoring reports, all of it can be read online by even by everyone else. So it's also just appreciating the fact that this is impactful, important work. And um, we, have, we do aim to be timely and catalytic and as quick as we can. Uh, that is something we aim for. And I like to think it happens in more occasions than not. And the last one on the fact that it's not a qualification. It is true. It is not a qualification competition. I don't have a PhD. Some of my colleagues don't have a master's. But it is about the breadth of experience. The more experience you have, it's the better. Definitely. Because that is something that can quickly help you in obtaining opportunities and can show that you have a sense of professionalism and commitment. So adding to that is maybe... If I'm thinking also of the other skill sets that international civil servants should have, is number one, also an interest in global affairs. That's something different than I see in the private sector. For example, in corporate law, they'll tell you, read Financial Times, read Financial Times, read the Financial Times, right? I mean, you, you have to have an interest in global affairs and international relations, but not just an interest in which you passively hear the news or read the newspapers. If anyone is interested in eventually having a career in an international organization such as the UN, I would say from now on, whenever watching the news, reading the news, put your thinking cap on and just think all the time, why is this conflict here? Who's operating in it? Who is not operating in it? And why? Who's this conflict interest for? Who is it not? So really analyzing what you're hearing in the news, trying to understand the trends. Has there been a trend of this? What could this lead in the future? Because the dynamics that uh, the international community operates in, it's very complex. And it's honestly, it's a, it's a much more sensitive and complex equation than I've seen in anything in the private sector. No merchant acquisition has ever felt this complicated. <laughs> it sometimes things felt so straightforward in comparison to what I look at now. So being interested in multiculturalism also, often a lot of us assume we're, we have a global mindset, right? But it's important to not only have respect for different cultures, since you're going to be working with colleagues from all over the world and serving people from all over the world, but also, can you adapt your knowledge almost to any culture? I mean, there's something interesting I've seen is in the UN, often people would work for a while on the Sahel, then on Western Balkans, then on Yemen, and then on Palestine. And I almost think this is such different countries. Shouldn't they just be focused on one region? Not really. Because what they're bringing is their abilities and the, the way they're able to see the different dynamics and to see the different stakeholders and what does this mean? They're able to answer those questions in whatever settings you put them on. So it's having that kind of global mindset, that ability to see different cultures, learn quickly, adapt quickly. Conflict evolves very fast. Situations change very fast. So being also adaptable. And understanding the sensitivity of things and really diplomacy can go a long way. You need to be diplomatic as much as possible when working in whatever, um, I'd say, field in the UN. A very comprehensive answer. I mean, that's a good list to go by. In terms of the process of applying in itself, 
What tips would you give to people that want to work in the UN and are seeking to apply there? What recommendations would you give to them in terms of the application process? So for juniors, there's different set of opportunities, but just to maybe go through certain set of opportunities. I mean, the first one is obviously internship, if anyone's interested in returning. But of course, do your research because some organizations pay and some don't. And some have a max of six months and some don't. So do your research on that kind of topic. Second of all is there are certain programs that the UN has in partnerships with countries. For example, the Junior Professional Officer Program and the um, Young Professional Officer Program. So it's the JPO program and then the YPP program. The YPP program is actually a competitive process, which you'd have to sit through exams and interviews. But you also have to have your country on the list. Meanwhile, the JPO program is really the, also your country should be on the list. It's also competitive, but it depends. From one country to another, there'll be different sets of pro, uh, exams and interviews. Uh, both those programs, you have the same benefits and salary as a staff, and you'll work for uh, two years. But you'd have to have had some experience, at least in uh, the relevant field that you're applying for. Now, the most common entry point for juniors is the UNV, the UN Volunteers Program, where you specifically apply for the organization, the UNV organization, and from there, they'll station you. Now, the UN Volunteers Program, you can even walk in as a fresh grad. It's just that there is a set of P levels in the UN, P1, P2, P3. This is an extreme HR term I'm saying right now. P1 means you have no experience whatsoever. P2 means two years experience, while P3 is uh, five years experience. All of them are quite competitive because they're all junior level. Often P3 is where you stay in the system the most. But if you're walking in as a fresh grad, then you're probably a P1. So a lot of people walk in as a P1 to the UN um, Volunteers Program and stay as UN Volunteers for two, three, four, five years even until they accumulate enough experience to become P2 or P3. And in all these positions, you can actually end up working in HQ or the field. And most commonly, it's always advised for juniors to experience the field. Since in the field, you'll uh, really be in the heart of the matter. You'll see it all happen for yourself. You'll be able to test yourself on how accepting are you of different cultures and what can you really understand? What are the dynamics that exist in this country? What are you seeing? What are you not? And last but not, never the least is that you'll have a higher level of responsibility than you would in comparison to HQ, where it's a big, big organization. There's all kinds of people, um, different sets of skill sets. I mean, I work in HQ in New York, and don't get me wrong, it's brilliant. One of the perks of working in New York is that everyone passes by HQ, so it's great networking opportunities, and you end up meeting such fascinating people. Also, there's always meetings, so you end up being moved into somewhere, and it's constantly busy. But even HQ is really busy, and I think um, having experience in the field always really strengthens uh, someone's understanding of the UN and the work that they do especially if they're a fresh grad and they still have no experience, then maybe that's the best path for them to go through. Those are kind of the pathways to the UN. And the last one that juniors also tend to come in through is a consultant position. Now, consultant position doesn't mean you have to have worked in consultancy before. Um, it merely means that you're going to be pulled into for a specific project that they're interested in. So it's more of a niche thing. For example, they're bringing you in for a research project or uh, rather than being brought in as an employee for the department, you're really being brought in on a contractual term for one assignment. Now, I've known people who've been consultants for three years, four years, because that assignment takes uh, ages. Um, you could be a data, a data analyst who's analyzing Twitter and social media accounts in the Middle East and trying to see the trends of uh, conflict and 
relating back to the community violence. While sometimes I've known consultants that have just come in for a few months for a specific research program. So when I'm thinking of junior positions at the UN, those are the entryways that are most common for people to get in. And quite a lot of entry points at that. (laughs) I think you've painted quite a holistic and yet detailed picture, both in terms of application, work, work experience, using law as a stepping stone. You should seriously consider working as a freelance graduate recruitment consultant on the side if this peace building thing doesn't work out. Um, But usually I'd end or I'd ask the question about what words of inspiration you'd like to impart to our listeners that are currently a bit you know, frightened about the future. But I don't know about you, but this whole conversation has been one motivational talk after another. So unless there's something extra that you want to add, I think I'll skip to the next section. No, of course. I think just to add maybe uh, on tips that people are interested in getting to the end is definitely following Kriyan and social media. But specifically, uh, like I said, there's 15 agencies. So realizing which one are you interested in. Say, for example, you're interested in HR, but you feel very strongly about women empowerment, then maybe UN Women is the best place for you, right? Let's say you're into finance, but also you're really keen on doing development work, then maybe IMF, World Bank, or even UNDP is for you. So really recognizing where do you fit in the huge UN system, because there's something for everyone, whether you're economist, data analysis, I mean, even mathematicians, there's really something for everyone. But also kind of giving advice is, you often might get tested, uh, written exams by following the UN on social media, really pick up on the way they write and talk, because that's very important, actually. They ha- there is a certain way to write when you're in the UN. It's funny, now I could see it, that I've been there for so long, but the way they talk about certain issues, the way that the organization stays neutral, the way that the most sensitive topics ever are discussed in a way that we see the different sides of what's happening, but still obviously standing up for the values that the UN stands for, by following the UN on social media and, of course, reading the reports that come out, if you don't have time for it to read the reports, always read the executive summary that really summarizes the whole thing. Saves, saves me every time. <laughs> exactly. Really try to read between the lines. Try to pick up on the keywords. Try to pick up on the global issues. Try to pick up on what are they talking about? What are they not talking about? I think that will go a long way, especially when it comes the day that you have to sit in an exam or an interview. Yeah, and just on on those two points, picking up on the fact that there's a niche for everyone, it seems, at the the United Nations, but also specifically in terms of that second one about really identifying, and this is more general, not only to the UN, is really identifying who your employer is and how they are. We spoke before this interview about, from a marketing perspective, getting to know the company as as a person. What do they like to eat? How do they talk? How do they speak? And right before this interview, I thought this is, this is just a typical marketing gimmick, but, um, just through this interview and, and right now you're talking about getting to know how the UN writes. It, it makes a lot of sense. And not only does it make sense, the analogy, but it also explains why you should care about taking the time to learn these things. Because at the end of the day, you're developing a relationship with this organization. And as such, you should really get to know the person that you are going to be committing your weekdays on and maybe a couple of late nights on in order to see whether, you know, whether you're a right match for them, but whether they're a right match for you. Very well said. <laughs> We've covered a lot, a lot of important topics left and right. I always like to end these interviews on a bit more of a lighthearted note and doing a, a fun question round. Okay. And so the question I have to ask you is, aside from your law degree studies and, and work studies, I imagine you, like all other law students, have enjoyed a bit of the legal TV shows and legal movies, or even you know the typical legal novel here and there. What is your favorite dramatized legal character and why? 
legal character. Okay. I don't know his name, but um, my favorite, well, it's my favorite movie, but I should know his name, is uh, 13 Angry Men. I don't know if you've ever watched it. Ooh. It's a is it 13 movie. or 12? Or is that another movie? (laughs) It's a 12 angry man. Now I'm doubting myself, but (laughs) it's a very old movie. It's a black and white movie. It's actually about a jury that had to sit in a room, be stuck together and in a stuffy room. And they just wanted to make the judgment guilty or innocent. And everyone was in such a rush. But there was this one persistent character that kept questioning them. What if we're wrong? What if we are wrong in the judgment we're making? And you can watch how people eventually lost their patience with him. But the reason I really, really look up to that character till today is the constant questioning. It's just that element is how important it is in law, how important it is even in the work we do in peace building. What if we're wrong? What if we're right? What is wrong? What is right? Not to get too philosophical, but I mean, truly, really think of it. Um, things in history that used to be illegal are now legal. Right. But that's that's what made that shift happen. What made us suddenly legalize certain things and actually things that were legal are now illegal. Like right? It's just I mean, look at that. Right. So it's just super interesting seeing how the transformation of the world can be translated when you look into law. I, I do think that a lot of turning points for the world eventually can be seen in policies and legislation. So. That kind of character always resonated with me because I think I'm that annoying character that's always questioning. Questioning myself, questioning people, always. (laughs) (laughs) And it's an important virtue to have, and not only in terms of the law, but more generally in the legal perspective. As you said, you know, legality is in a constant state of flux. But it's by questioning things and, and in questioning states that we really get to understand or value the rationale behind them. It seems that you've had this questioning personality very much manifested through your journey and you've pivoted as a result of that. And I think that's quite important for our listeners who are curious as to what other opportunities are out there and kind of learning early on this idea of actively questioning and finding the value of questioning because at the end of the day, you arrive at an answer and you're either happy with that answer and thus it refortifies your confidence in, in your current state of affairs or you're not happy with that answer and then that you know forces you to change the state of affairs. It forces you to choose a different path or look for something new. So questioning is essentially just an impetus for for for, for change or for appreciation of of, of your current state of affairs. And so I really like that, your answer. <laughs> no, I love the way you summarized this, Max. And I think most importantly is questioning forces us to evolve. It also forces industries. And I think the most brilliant business ideas and the most brilliant inventions always came up from thinking, what if? What if we can do this? What if we can do that? Wouldn't it be great if it's possible for us to do this? So I think that's really how the best of it. So I'll say just um, that I was not very comfortable with questioning in the beginning because I didn't have answers. The unknown is scary. It is terrifying. So for everyone that's now getting comfortable with questioning things, it is frustrating when you don't have an answer. And I told you early on, Max, I was one of the people who always had a plan and answers. And eventually I realized that the beauty of life, and not to end it as a cliche, but uh, the beauty of life is the fact that the more you question, the more you press yourself to evolve, to realize, and to really become desperate enough to get creative in your next steps. So it's taking that anxiety and allowing it to motivate you and turning it to more of a positive narrative where you're telling yourself, because I don't know what's coming next, I can actually make it anything. 
So let me try to think, what can I do with this? And really that opening your eyes to all that's around you and then opening your eyes internally. It is a brilliant, um, scary journey I went through. <laughs> and I'm sure there's still plenty more for me to go through. So I hope to continue. <laughs> See, that's the thing. The legal profession is just one of those professions where everything becomes a lot more existentialist. And we forget that we have an average lifespan of about 60 to 80 years. And instead, we think that everything needs to be done between the ages of 18 and 30. <laughs> <laughs> I read this thing recently that said life doesn't end at 30. Because <laughs> again, a lot of the juniors I work with actually are, are just 30. And they still they have so much. We have so much yet to still do and contribute to the world. So, so much time. Uh, unfortunately, I'm going to have to cue this to our ending. Honestly, I think we could spend hours continuing our conversations. And, and there are plenty of things that merit exploration, but can't do justice on this episode. So we'll just have to wait for our listeners to campaign for another episode, a second season. So hopefully you can come back again and we can continue these conversations. But I really do just want to thank you, Jude. Thank you so much for your time. It's been really lovely chatting to you. And I really hope that my listeners, as much as I have benefited from your conversation, from your experience, and, and all your words of wisdom. So I really wanted to thank you for coming on today. No, thank you so much, Max. I've truly enjoyed this conversation. It's just been delightful to talk about this and share all these experiences. And I wish you and I wish all the listeners all the very best. And a lot of questions. <laughs> Speaking of questions, if our listeners do end up having any types of questions and want to follow them up from this interview, how can they contact you? I mean, I'm on LinkedIn, Jude, uh, Jude W. Harthy. I'm also on Twitter, Jude W. Harthy. And I'm also on a Instagram as uh, Judy Writes, actually. That's on my creative writing. I still, do keep, uh, I still do keep it up because it's important to keep your interest up. So I'm um, happy to answer any questions. I'm happy to support whoever would like to. Please do reach out. Fantastic. Well, there you have it, folks. Thank you so much, Jude. Thank you so much, Max. Well, there you go, folks. That's all for now. I hope you found that as inspiring and as interesting as I have. Special thanks to our unsung heroes for the week, Claire Herberg for editing and producing the episode, Andrew Wardell for scripting the show notes and blog post, and Matt Gedrich for the absolute banger of a theme song. If you enjoyed the episode, show us some love. Subscribe to us on your podcast platform of choice and be sure to follow us on our social media platforms at legalt.uk. Till next time.